Hello and welcome to a virtual debate on metastatic breast cancer. How can we improve care for patients? A Euroactive debate supported by Sanofi, a pharmaceutical company developing research into treatment options for metastatic cancer patients. I'm Zaidi and I'll be your host for this important discussion over the next hour and 15 minutes. A big thank you to everyone who is, of course, joining us online. It's great to have you with us. And if you would like to put in a question or a comment to any one of our panelists, don't forget to send it into our chat page. And I'll pick out some of your questions later on in the programme, so do get involved. So today, we're going to be discussing an issue that, well, let's be honest, for many women in particular, it's something that's going to feel deeply personal on many different layers and levels. Breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer. In 2020, it accounted for over 13% of all cancer diagnoses. Metastatic cancer is something even worse. Also known as stage four, advanced breast cancer and secondary breast cancer, it's when the cancer has spread or metastasized from its origin in the breast to other parts of the body. So sadly, the brain, the liver, the lungs and the bones. Now, approximately 5 to 10% of breast cancers are metastatic at diagnosis. And even when they're not, estimates suggest that 20 to 30% of women diagnosed with early breast cancer will eventually progress to metastatic disease. Now, these stats that I have read out, well, they do make for grim viewing. And while there is no cure today, there are better treatments out there that can lead to a better quality of life and extend life expectancy. But more, of course, needs to be done in terms of care and understanding metastatic breast cancer and also to improve the general level of care that is available across the block, which is at this point very varied. Now, the EU Commission has unveiled its Beating Back Cancer Action Plan, which is going through the legislative process. It's currently at the European Parliament. But the big question is whether the European Union itself and its member states individually, are they up to this task? Well, let's ask our panellists. Joining today's debate on metastatic cancer, how we can improve care for patients, are Stefan Schreck, advisor for stakeholder relations at the European Commission's DG Sante. We also have Dr. Bettina Ryle, a board member at the Mission Board for Cancer at the European Commission. We also have Dr. Fatima Cardoso, um, director at the um, breast unit of the Champagnon uh, Clinical Medical Center and president of the Breast Cancer ABC Global Alliance. We also have Tani Spanik, uh, president at the nonprofit uh, Europa Donna, the European Breast Cancer Coalition. So a big welcome, of course, to all of you. And no doubt everyone listening is going to be extremely interested to hear what you all have to say. And no doubt everyone's going to be learning quite a bit today. Right, well to understand who our panellists are, what they do and what they advocate for, I'm now going to give the floor to them for five minutes each. Starting with Stefan Schreck, advisor for stakeholder relations at DJ Sante at the European Commission. You have five minutes. Yes, thank you very much, Mariam. And uh, yeah, I wanted to start with a definition what it is. You said it already. It's a cancer that originated in the breast and spread to other parts of the body. Um, I would like to start with what we know about how frequent it is. Actually, we know a lot about breast cancer in general. There's the European Cancer Information System, which is run by the Joint Research Center. Um, but that does not have data about metastatic breast cancer published. Uh, and that's because not all of the cancer registries across the European Union record also progression of tumors. So usually they do not have information about prevalent metastatic cancers. 
and uh, that, that's already a problem. But we know about breast cancer indeed. Uh, according to the latest data, uh, data, breast cancer is indeed the most diagnosed tumor among all cancer types and the first cause of cancer death among women with, in 2020, more than 355,000 new cases and 91,500 uh, new deaths. So therefore we can say that one out of 11 women, all ages considered, is estimated to develop breast cancer at some point in her life. It is estimated that breast cancer accounts for 13.3 of all new cancer cases diagnosed in EU's 27 countries. And this makes it the most frequent occurring cancer accounting for 28.7% of all new cancers in women. Incidence trends are mainly increasing. Uh, multiple factors explain these changes, including reproductive factors, obesity, physical inactivity, but also increased screening coverage. Mortality trends in the EU27 tend to be declining, mainly due to effective treatment and tools for detecting the disease at early stages. Um, the five-year survival of breast cancer patients diagnosed in 2000 to 2007 is highest in Northern and Western Europe, and lowest in Eastern Europe with differences, which can in part be explained by varying levels of healthcare expenditure and resulting quality of diagnosis and treatment across the European Union. The Quality Assurance Scheme run by the Joint Research Center as part of the Commission Initiative on Breast Cancer, specific requirements related to the treatment Okay, well, we're having a little bit of problem with, oh, I should say, uh, Mr. Shrek is having a little bit of problem there um, with his equipment. Um, sorry about that. We'll get him back Mandatory. in a moment. So I'll move on to... And then we oh, have and he's our back. Europe... Oh, I was interrupted. Please go so ahead. So what did, we, we, did you we not hear? I, 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 then I should repeat the uh, quality assurance scheme because that's really important. That we started already a couple of years ago. That's run by the Joint Research Center. And as part of the Commission Initiative on Breast Cancer, it includes specific requirements related to the treatment of metastatic breast cancer and also psychological support to improve quality of life and rehabilitation. Uh, and in addition, the routine measurement of patient-reported outcomes to monitor well-being of women with breast cancer, including metastatic cancer, is also mandatory if you want to participate in this quality assurance scheme. And then, uh, yes, when I came back, I just wanted to start with the Europe's Beating Cancer Plan, because that is indeed the biggest initiative ever on cancer in the Commission. And that offers a number of opportunities to strengthen breast cancer prevention and care, and by consequence, actions and measures to have an impact on metastatic breast cancer. There's first primary prevention of breast cancer, and that will benefit of targeted actions to limit alcohol consumption, to support physical activity and fight obesity. All these are factors which raise the risk of breast cancer. Then we have early detection through screening, and that will ensure that cancer is detected before giving metastasis. And under the cancer plan, the guidelines and recommendation on how to upgrade and access to breast cancer screening will be further developed. 
support to access to innovative approaches based on genomics and personalized risk assessment to diagnosis, to profile breast cancers vis-a-vis -vis their capacity to give metastatic disease, and to adapt these risk profiles to efficient and rapid treatment will contribute to reduce the impact of metastatic breast cancers. So that's uh, essentially what the what the Eurospeeding cancer plan will improve. We have also seen how COVID-19 had a significant impact on access to screening, diagnosis, treatment, and monitoring. And the cancer plan will also contribute to ensure a better response to such threats in the future, mainly making use of improved e-health and telemedicine application, as well as through better communication and adapted literacy to explain to people how how uh, access to health systems during crisis situation can be improved because many people were simply scared by the idea of accessing uh, medical services uh, during the time of the pandemic. Another important element is support to cancer survivors that will benefit patients who have been cured but who still need monitoring their condition to detect potential metastatic diseases as early as possible. And uh, in all these areas, the cancer plan will contribute to improvements. I, I mean, I have only five minutes, so I can't give you all the details. So that was a short version. Uh, but I would not like to stop without also mentioning the cancer mission that, uh, that we are also having. And that's basically research on cancer that will be developed under Horizon Europe. And already before, um, there's a project I would like to mention that was funded under Horizon 2020. That's the project Preferable that's making progress on improving the standard of care in metastatic breast cancer by strengthening the quality effectiveness and cost effectiveness for patients in a palliative setting using an app-based exercise based on previous results from the EFFECT multicenter clinical trial and the perspective study. The project is mapping the differences in European healthcare systems to provide solid evidence-based um, for the beneficial effect of exercise on breast cancer-related side effects and patients' quality of life in, uh, in a palliative setting. So, so much for research at this moment. So, thank you very much. Thank you, Ms. Schrecken. We will be, of course, talking to you a lot about and questioning you um, on what the European Commission is doing, especially the Beating Cancer Action Plan uh, later on, and especially asking you about any you know, COVID provisions that are in this new legislation. Okay, well, moving on to our next panellist, we have Dr. Bettina Ryle, board member at the Mission Board for Cancer at the European Commission. Welcome. You also have five minutes. Please go ahead. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. So it is a pleasure to be here and share a little bit now the complementary uh, version of what you have just heard from the health side, namely on the research side. So I have been a member of the Cancer Mission Board for now two years. Uh, nearly two years and I thought I'd give a little bit of a, of a context about how these missions came to be because I believe this is very pertinent to the to the topic discussed today. So the missions were a reaction to an evaluation of the previous funding program of the European uh, of the European Union namely Horizon 2020 in which some criticisms that were raised were that the value of research and innovation to society was not perceived as clear by our societies and that citizens did not feel a personal connection involved in them. 
And the recommendation that then came after a report that Mariana Mazzucato was tasked to write was to use a mission-driven approach to innovation um, to solve the vexing problems of our societies. And there are five actually of them. One of them is adaption to climate change, and I don't think I have to elaborate that. One are climate neutral and smart cities, a soil deal for European missions, so healthy soils and food, restore our oceans and waters. And the only one in the health space was the cancer mission. So it was the only one in uh, that really focused very specifically now um, on cancer. So for a bit of background, I am a physician by training. I've studied um, medicine in Germany and France and have uh, done a PhD in biomedical sciences in the UK. And I have actually worked on um, heterogeneity in the sense more than it is was about building. So I worked on what was used to be called embryology. And I ended up in patient advocacy after losing my husband to melanoma in 2012. And that was a case that came out of nowhere. He had just turned 36 at the time. He had a lump under his arm that in no time turned out to be a metastatic cancer that was spread everywhere. So my entry into the world of cancer started with the metastatic cancer of my own husband. And for that very reason, I'm honored to be invited here today and we have worked across cancers actually um, in the metastatic setting because you probably now wondered why on earth is someone in melanoma sitting at a breast cancer conference but what we have learned over the years is that those patients with a metastatic cancer independent of the origin of the cancer share a lot between them, among them, in terms of their concerns, in terms of their needs, their aspirations and their hopes. For those of you who have followed the discussion around the cancer mission in, in the past and actually the run-up to the mission, there was a lot of talk about prevention and how 40% of all cancers are preventable if we actually finally get our act together. There's always a lot of talk about early detection. I think that is very understandable if you look at the numbers of patients or people concerned by it, because that was actually a lapsus. These people are not patients. They're normal citizens, ordinary citizens, and cancer is this threat hanging over all of us in some way or shape or form. However, we should never ever forget, however successful we will ever be at prevention, however sophisticated we will be in early detection and follow-up there will always be a few unfortunate unlucky ones who will not be captured and caught and protected by that unfortunately some will always progress through these stages and we will always have patients in a metastatic setting be it breast cancer or else who desperately need our care it is, especially in breast cancer, this is also a typical cancer affecting young patients. These are women who are planning a family in the middle of their lives who are suddenly facing a devastating diagnosis and are facing their mortality at an age where everyone else is planning families. That was very similar to ours. My daughters were two and four at the time when their father was like, uh, was just like just before we moved here to Sweden and there was actually three and five when he was diagnosed and five and six when he died. So it is like, it was very, very, they were small, we're the only ones. And that's a, a story we find again and again and again in the metastatic setting. These people deserve our support and they deserve a different approach to how we think about cancer because we might all wish that it, we will not be affected and we might place our hopes in to 
healthy food, enough exercise, controlling obesity, and that we all have to do in any case. But we should never forget those for whom that will not be sufficient. So with that, I think that plea to take that on board and to take that in mind, I'm very hopeful that the ambitious research program we are having now in integration with the beating, clam, beating cancer plan will deliver just that for metastatic patients. And with that, I thank you for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Rao, and thank you so much for sharing um, your personal story um, about your husband's passing as well. And as you said, you know, cancer is a veil, you know, this dark veil uh, looming over so many of us. Um, and definitely this is going to be a brilliant discussion because there's so much we, of course, do need to speak about. Okay, well, over to our next panellist, Dr. Fatma Cardoso, Director of the Breast Unit at the Champalimont Clinical Centre and President of the ABC Global Alliance. You also have five minutes, please. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation and also for making uh, this debate happen around the issue of metastatic breast cancer. And I'll, I'll take a few seconds of my five minutes to say to Bettina how wonderful she is because she really understands uh, what crosses a, a, uh, the board between cancers. And as she said, the issues of metastatic cancers or metastatic cancer patients are much more common among the metastatic cancer patients of all types than, for example, between metastatic breast cancer patients and early breast cancer patients. And actually, the idea to create a global alliance against advanced or metastatic breast cancer came in the early 2000s from two um, surveys in many different countries, high-income countries, low-income countries, where mostly they were done in women, and they show that these women felt abandoned, totally abandoned by physicians, by researchers, and by patient support groups, as well as by the media. Nobody wants to hear a sad story, so nobody wants to talk about it. Right. And they also felt guilty because we passed this message that if we eat well, we exercise, we take the medication, we do the screening, everything will go fine. And sometimes it doesn't. So they felt, well, probably it's my fault. I did something wrong. And these two surveys, uh, which I don't have the time to go into the detail, uh, really made an impact on us. And we said, how can we change the outcome? Not forgetting also that this, for the moment, is an incurable disease, as, as it was already mentioned. But we can change that. We can aim higher and we can aim to develop treatments that improve survival, meaning the duration of life, as well as improve quality of life. So we have to provide to these patients what they need now, but also with an eye on the future. And this is what we can do, uh, connecting research with good practices, so treatment according to guidelines, and at the same time, awareness and support. So looking at the metastatic breast cancer patients as a whole, not as a disease and not as a survivor. So this word, it, they don't like it. They always feel very lost in the pink movement of the month of October. They have very specific needs that are different. And uh, our work when developing the Global Alliance was actually the first thing we did was to sit all the stakeholders together and define what could be a very, uh, let's say, a, a, 
objectives, but not a wish list. Objectives that are tangible, that are measurable, and that can be achieved in a 10-year period. And this led to the ABC Global Charter, which has 10 goals to be achieved during this decade that we are living on. And I don't have the time to go into the, all of them, but I'll give some examples that you will show you how they cross all types of cancers in the metastatic setting. Uh, stigma, we already mentioned it. So a lot of fight against the stigma of not talking uh, about a disease that it's for the moment uncurable. The second, opportunity to keep working, to be um, me productive members of society. For that, we need flexibility. And in the member states, it has been very difficult to fight for this flexibility in the laws related to work. But I think it is one of the good lessons from the pandemic is that we can have flexibility and be productive. That's the, the other point, data. We don't have good data. Stefan mentioned that. Cancer registries do not register relapse. And we do not know how many Europeans are living with metastatic breast cancer or any other metastatic cancer. And we need to change that. And we're uh, doing uh, things for that. And uh, finally, but most importantly, fight inequalities. Inequalities, not just in terms of access to new treatments, but also inequalities in access to biomarker testing, to genetic testing, and to uh, palliative care and when it comes to the terminal uh, ill or the last uh, end-of-life care. This is extremely different from country to country and within each country. And these are the type of inequalities that we aim to fight uh, uh, against. So I'll, I'll stay for, for now here and I'm sure we'll come back to some of these issues. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Cardoso, and thank you for those um, important definitions um, on metastatic breast cancer that, that will no doubt help people really understand what the disease really is um, a little bit better. And thank you also for discussing stigma, the loneliness and the shame um, that women go through as well. Finally, to our last panelist, but um, it is Tanya Schwanig, the president at the non-profit Europa Donna, uh, the European Breast Cancer Coalition. Welcome, and you also have five minutes. Please go ahead. Thank you also from my side, and thank you for the invitation. Well, we've heard a lot from my three previous uh, speakers, and I have to say that I strongly agree with all three of you, but I will just try to give you some insights from the pa patient perspective. So um, facing the diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer is something that every single person is facing in their own way, but we can see uh, great similarities. Through the treatment, as already Fatima mentioned, how uh, different accesses there are, patients are receiving also different drugs, and many of them have severe side effects. So they also uh, very often emphasize that quality of life is very important for them, and sometimes even more than progression-free survival or overall survivor, survivor where, where we see a very important point in psychosocial support, which is very, very neglected in this procedure, and many patients don't have access to it. For all patients in breast cancer, that means also including breast metastatic patients, we, 
really must not exclude them from, from these settings. Receiving optimal care is very crucial and they should be Part, uh, they should be treated in multidisciplinary team and have access to all kinds of different healthcare uh, experts. Besides access to the optimal treatment, patients should be well, inf well informed and educated on their particular stage of disease and uh, treatment, current treatment, because only well informed and educated patients can be equally involved in their treatment choices in the leading uh, to improvement of the patient and that's leading to the improvement of um, treatment outcomes patient education can be also achieved by a good communication between patient and her team uh, his uh, team treatment doctor's team and of course patients should have access to all information about the treatment in lay language they have to understand it and doctors should explain to them in really simple terms so metastatic setting of the disease is a very, uh, as already Bettina mentioned, it's very similar more in uh, different cancer types. And they can find a very lot of similarities, but not just the treatment options, there are also open questions and unclear uh, situations, particularly in terms of expectations and new treatments and how to improve their lives during the treatment. A very common concern um, when they are starting new treatment is that they really don't want to suffer any treatment or cancer-related effects. So for every new line of the treatment, patients expect the disease progression to stop, but not really at all costs. Again, I would like to point out how metastatic breast cancer patients uh, really um, emphasizes that quality of life is important to them. Uh, but um, a very good communication on different level and trust between physicians and patients is really crucial, not just for, for early setting of the disease, but metastatic. And since they are also facing a lot of uncertainty and anxiety, uh, emotional burden, they are also facing a lot of stigma regarding their disease and what they should expect of their, their disease. They don't want to talk about end of life. They are also put uh, on the side of the society. Fatima mentioned uh, work activities. They should have access to work and of course to all other services. I will stop at this point. Thank you so much, Ms. Danik. And um, one thing I noticed, I picked up on, on what you were saying there. And um, you kept, you said the phrase, you know, patients should have access, you know, hopefully one day they they will have access to all the things that you were advocating uh, there for. So thank you to all of our panelists for your opening um, statements and advocating. Um, you know, our viewers do, um, I still don't see any questions from you. Um, so, you know, please, this is a really important discussion. So please do put in your comments um, and your questions to our panelists, and I will be selecting some of those a little bit on uh, a little bit later on in the programme. So do get involved. Okay, well, moving on to the debate itself. And I'm going to start with a question, a general question for all of the panelists, and I'll start with um, Mr. Shrek first, and we'll go through all of you. Um, just a quick one, you, you can hopefully not say yes or no, but just a quick reply. Is there enough information, public information and knowledge on what metastatic breast cancer is? Or 
if I widen um, widen this a little bit more, do you think the public at large really understand what metastatic cancer is? Mr. Trek? Yeah, there, there um, we know that probably not enough people know that. Um, we we um, have quite some experience in trying at European level to have better health information and health literacy in general. And uh, from that, we know that this is a really very complicated um, um, approach, uh, at least if you do it at European level. So I don't think that there is enough uh, information about this in the population. And then Ms. Riles, so why is there this lack of information um, to the general population, as Mr. Um, Shrek pointed out there? I'm actually not sure that people don't understand what metastatic cancer is. Um, the, the fear that cancer causes is that we know that it kills people, and metastatic is usually the step before it kills you. I think what is missing, however, is an understanding of the differences between the different stages that an early cancer, like a cancer you capture, catch early, behaves very differently than a metastatic one. So I think what people, and then we see this at least in our own network, is that people don't understand the differentiation and that your prognosis looks very different depending on the stage you are. And I think a lot of, a lot of our issues come precisely from that because people who have like a very early stage cancer with a very good prognosis cannot differentiate themselves from, let's say, an advanced metastatic cancer and the fear and the psychological burden that comes then from this cancer diagnosis often stems from the fact that people haven't been able to differentiate. So I think from my perspective, the issue is the differentiation and understanding where one itself is on this continuum that is the, the, the real challenge and then hopefully to move to the next step as well. It gets all lumped together. The discussion gets very fluffy and very fearful uh, without need, need without the need to be so. Okay, and Dr. Cardoso, uh, fluffy and fearful, or do you, as, as you were saying a bit earlier on in your opening statement, is it a case of lack of data perhaps as well? Well, I, I agree with Bettina. I think this there is people understand that there are different stages of uh, cancer but they don't actually understand the difference if we speak about breast cancer for example that we're speaking here today people associate it with early detection with screening with the pink movement and some people even say oh we don't need to do anything more for breast cancer it's already a lot has been done and uh, they do not understand the difference between early breast cancer and metastatic. And these patients with metastatic cancer, they feel lost uh, among two very extreme understandings or perceptions about what is metastatic cancer. Some people listen to metastatic and they associate it with terminal ill. So for them, metastatic is, is equal to terminal ill. They will die very quickly. Others believe that it's the same as early. Uh, cancer. And so the, the, the actually metastatic cancer is neither one nor the other. It's a stage of disease that it's more advanced than early, but it's not yet terminal ill. And this stage of disease may represent several years of a life of someone that it's in the majority of those years fully capable of performing the tasks as a mother, as a, as, a, as a child, as a grandmother, or and their professional lives. So absolutely capable of performing their tasks 
socially, professionally, and family uh, in family terms. So then I'm Hispanic, is then the problem is, is it that it's not understanding difference? I could agree that there is not enough data or information, but on the other hand, there is a lot of data and information, but you don't read and you don't inform yourself uh, about cancer, about breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer, if you are not affected by it or if you are not working in this field. What, what we see in uh, our organization, I'm also a president of Europa Dona in Slovenia, so I meet cancer patients uh, daily. They come to us, they call us. It's really what Fatima said, that it's per also a lot of about the personal perspective, how the patient, once she or he uh, hears the diagnosis, how he understands, she understands that. So in metastatic breast cancer, uh, unfortunately, we speak about mostly about women. But um, what we try to say is and encourage them to live as Fatima said, to live as normal and as long as possible. So getting uh, involved in your daily uh, routines, in your work uh, workspace, if possible, in your family life, not to be excluded out of it. You know, sometimes people hear the diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer and they are just like, oh, I'm going to die. And they lay down and wait to die. This is something that is really not uh, an, an option today anymore. As Fatima said, we know how long women with breast cancer, with metastatic breast cancer can live and live very good life with it. So I think that we have to put as a breast cancer society even more efforts to this and to inform this women and educate was I, what I already pointed out, to educate them to be an equal partner in this procedure and to, to be aware of how many options they have and what they can all experience during this, not just to wait until the end of their lives. And definitely breast metastatic breast cancer is not uh, end of life right away. So Mr. Shrek, is the onus for this education then on public bodies or on organizations such as the European Commission, where does the onus lie on whom or on what? Uh, I, I would say on everybody. Yeah, everybody can at at all levels um, can make a contribution to that. That is quite clear. We are trying to uh, to make a contribution, for example, by establishing a knowledge center in the JRC. Uh, but we know that this, in the end, will probably be more for experts. The the member states, of course, also have a responsibility in their health systems, but also in their education systems. And um, the many NGOs uh, which are active in the area of cancer also have an important role to play, but also, of course, the media and, and journalists. So I, I really do think that we can make progress only if everybody plays their role. Sure, okay. Um, so one to patient can I is add something? with medicine. Sure, can go I ahead, add something? go ahead, please do um, yeah about the, the media because um, I think a, a lot of the problems also, sometimes the solutions, but sometimes the problems come also from the media and the media not wanting to pass or to speak about uh, stories that don't always have an happy ending. So, and you would say, oh, we don't feel that way anymore as, as an industry, as the media and journalists, but it is true. So, uh, 
next week we're going to have uh, the the international conference for advanced breast cancer and nobody in the media wants to talk about it and they came back again with the answer or oh, we don't want to talk about sad things because people are tired about because of the pandemic and while you still have this association with metastatic equals bad things and sad things and not not happy ending or happy stories this passes a wrong information the i have learned so much by uh, communicating with patients with metastatic cancers overall and i've i'm pretty sure i've become a better person by interacting with them so it's a pity because they are rich people in knowledge that a lot of others should listen to. Okay, well, Dr. Cardato, thank you for that. Um, as a member of the media, I can say that, you know, I do, I understand where you're coming from. And what I would say is to any media organization that hasn't gotten involved um, with you to listen in and to get back in touch with you. Okay, well, so, I want to talk about something a little bit different now. Um, so when a patient is diagnosed, of course, with metastatic breast cancer, um, time is then the most important uh, factor. The faster the diagnosis, the faster I presume a treatment, can, treatment plan can then be put in place um, for that patient to improve their quality of life and the longevity um, of their life. If I could quickly ask you all again, what are the most important factors for a patient when they are diagnosed? If I could start with Mr. Shrek first again. Yeah, well, this is more a question for the experts, I would say, but I can still make a contribution. Um, what we are now working on is comprehensive cancer centers in all member states, because what we realized that one important element of the problem is that in many cases, um, different um, healthcare providers are actually treating all the same patient in an uncoordinated way. And that is something where we think we can make a general contribution also at European level to, to improve um, the experience of newly diagnosed patients. Okay, and then Dr. Ra, if I could ask you the same question, then what's the most important factors that can help a patient at, at the point of diagnosis? Very much. Uh building on what uh, Stefan just said, uh, I think it is being in the right place because it's just like so much depends on the first treatment you will be getting then. And this is where we actually see the differences. And at, at the moment, there is a lot, well, it's still a lot of um, roulette in there that depending on where you are, the first treatment uh, looks very, very different. And for a patient, um, to expect a patient to be um, informed at that stage, to be able to make far-reaching decisions is, is very, very hard. We call this in, in our disease like the black hole. That's where we lose patients. So someone who's unlucky, who's not in the right place and is not informed has no chance compared to someone who by chance or by knowledge is in, in the best or in, in, in the center that has access to the latest guideline-based care. So, Dr. Cardoso, then how do you stop someone? Is there, I mean, well, I guess there isn't a way to stop them, but how do you try to at least prevent this black hole that Dr. Rao talks about? Well, well I, I think this is, is crucial, and I, you will, I'm sure you will listen also from Tanya speaking about knowing where to be treated is the most important and the most powerful information that you can have. But 
to know that you have to provide this information to the general population. You need to think about these things and say, okay, if I have this cancer or if I have cancer, where do I go in my country, in my city? Try to know this because eventually, and I don't want to scare anyone, but at this time, one out of three to one out of two Europeans will have at least one cancer during their lifetime. And so, and it's not meaning, and not saying that they will die of that cancer, but they will have that cancer. And to be able to not be in that black hole that uh, Bettina spoke about, you need to know in advance where to be treated. And you should look for a multidisciplinary team specialized and dedicated to the treatment of a cancer. And for breast cancer, I will let Tanya speak about the fight that Europadon and many of us have had these last decades already to establish what we call breast units. Ms. and if you'd like to yes. go ahead, please. Yes, I, I, I always say that Fatima is also one of the biggest patient advocates, especially for metastatic breast cancer patients. And I'm really happy that she's helping us and supporting us in, in this work, work. And as I already said at the beginning, it's very important to be treated in the multidisciplinary teams. And the, uh, as Fatima said, in breast units, what does that mean that a woman has access to all different healthcare experts in same institution and they are talking about her case with her discussing the treatment options. That is why it's very important when do you where do you go when you are diagnosed. I know that a common healthy person doesn't care about cancer and doesn't care where to go if they got, get diagnosed. But it is very important and here is responsibility on us as a patient community to give our voice in public, to raise our awareness in public. So once people get diagnosed, they can come to us or refer to us or look on our website and find all of this information written and very clearly, very simple, where to go, where to get additional information or call us or not just Google it, but you know, if you are in uh, Slovenia, you get diagnosed with breast cancer, you know about the Ropadona, and then you come to us. So this is one of the things that we, we want to address and where we need help in, uh, in media to give us some space so that people know about us. And if I just go a little bit back when you discuss, we discussed about the media, I think that again, we have the role as a patient organization to prove them and to show them why it is important to talk about metastatic breast cancer and not just about early and positive stories, because still, if we take a look at the statistics, how many women die because of the breast cancer? They are here, they are among us. I've lost a lot of friends during this past 13 years since I've been here. And this is the thing that gives me power and, and my energy to work towards this, because I believe that with the working together efforts on with all stakeholders, we can lower that number. If we cannot avoid uh, the incidence and the diagnosis of breast cancer and also many other cancers, I believe, strongly believe that we can lower the death rates. And this is something that we should put more effort to and talk about it, not just about incidence and happy numbers, about five year survival rate. Well, this is too little, uh, too, too short period, at least for me. I want to see three, 30, 20, 30, 
40 years of survival rates, not just five years. So this is something that we really need to work together towards that. Okay, Ms. Spanik, I just want to follow up on, on, on what you were saying about the role of the media in providing information to the public. Talk to me a little bit about then, you've said that you don't feel the media have done enough to highlight metastatic breast cancer. So give me a sense of how many times you have had the media on your side. Well, in Slovenia, we are lucky enough that we are a small country and that we have a very good relationship with the media and uh, all kind of uh, media channels from TV to newspapers and digital media. But what I can see in other countries, they don't have this luck. So we try to empower them and educate our patient advocates across 47 member countries as we have in Europa Dona to do the same, to go to the media, to present their case and to ask them to, to help them to raise this voice and to show people what, what is the importance. We try in Slovenia to talk about metastatic breast cancer throughout the whole, to, whole October, not just about positive, happy things, go to screening and uh, do self-exam, but also about uh, the, the, again, the high number in death rates. Unfortunately, in Slovenia, we have a very bad numbers more than one woman uh, die in Slovenia every day because of breast cancer and I think that this is very important not to avoid this topic but to present it and to present to people in very clear language and to see to see how important this is okay well thank you so much for raising that issue um, as you say you know the news itself it isn't um you know, very, it, it can be quite negative sometimes, but you're right, if the role of the media needs to be heightened, then if you're watching, please do um, take an interest. Okay, well, let's talk about the treatment plan then for patients of metastatic breast cancer. Um, no one treatment plan fits all. Um, obviously, caregivers need to find the best approach for the patient in question. Um, so talk with precision medicine or personalised therapy, and I'll direct this to Ms. Uh, Dr. Ryle, please. So, um, well, it's a topic very close to my heart. As I said, uh, I started out in the in the advanced setting, and I think we always come to a point where tumors are have, do no longer respond to any type of uh, available treatment. And then one option that these patients still have is is to enter a personalized or precision medicine program, should that exist, where tumors get analyzed for actionable mutations and then become a therapy that is just fit for them or it's just supposed to work for them. For patients that is often the the last resort um, in if there are no clinical trials available. I classify this and I know that some people don't like the term. I think of it as experimental medicine because we do not have any guidelines. We don't have any prior evidence. We just have something, well, not any evidence, but weak evidence to go on. And as a patient, at the time it is a leap of faith because you often know that the alternative is death. So people in this situation are willing to take risk, but that of course does not give anyone else the right to be to take it lightly or not to pay due diligence and not to make more efforts into solving this issue. 
So um, I think it is a, one of these spaces where the integration of research and healthcare is really, really becoming important. And that's why I, as a patient advocate, especially on the Cancer Mission Board, must say that this was probably the single most positive experience in the last um, two years to see the integration and the collaboration and tighter kind of structures between DG scientists or the health part and DG research, so the research part uh, within the European Commission. And also this is now filtering down also onto country levels because I thought, I kind of naively thought, even being trained as a Madagascar researcher, that it would be obvious that in cancer everyone was walking to, uh, working together uh, between the healthcare system and the research. And I was, for example, that was not too uh, too recent. Actually, it was quite recently. That was not like too long ago to learn that often if you have a patient in a single hospital and you take a tumor out and analyze it in the research setting, you're unable to integrate the data and the learnings from the research setting with the standard healthcare data, though it is the same patient in the same university hospital usually. I think that's unacceptable. So for, for us, those people, those patients out of options, we need access to experimental medicine with a proper research setting and it has to be accessible broad and fast and for any many patients, as many patients as we can possibly make this happen. So that for me is a very important piece in, in, in there and of course personalized medicine or precision medicine is a piece um, in there. It's not the only one but it's an important piece. So that's something as a topic I'm particularly passionate about. And I think we have to get our research concepts um, sharpened in this area because we're still fishing for single mutations. And I think that's not the way about uh, to think about the problems. It is uh, something, it's a problem of complexity. So this will require collaboration, not just with uh, like, like physicians, but also molecular biologists with people who understand complexity, uh, people who can model the complexity. So it is a challenge already just on the research side alone. I could talk about this for for a whole day so i'm stopping here but um i do believe there that is a piece of hope for for patients in the advanced setting and dr cardoso then and um, your thoughts then on precision medicine and personalized therapy so um as bettina said it, it is one piece it's not the only piece uh in particularly for uh, breast cancer the 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 whole genome sequencing of the tumor and the look for uh, actionable mutations in general uh, it has not provided as much uh, uh, advances as we had hoped but what it has provided was a, a, a better understanding of the biology of breast cancer and a better understanding of which mutations, which alterations, sometimes not a mutation, are really driving some types of breast cancer. And then, based on that, develop what we call targeted therapy. So the, the therapy that is going to target these alterations that exist mostly in uh, the breast cancer cells. Uh, if you develop targeted agents and the more targeted the better you will be able in in theory that's the goal is to hit and kill the tumor cells with less side effects so for a metastatic cancer this provides the efficacy but also the quality of life so this balance between uh, efficacy and toxicity quantity and quality of life which is so important and so delicate and difficult this is what precision medicine or individualized medicine um, can help us uh, i think we're still a little bit further away uh, far away let's say from getting the 
um, application of individualized treatment in our normal clinical practice. But the more we talk, and Bettina is totally right, the more the researchers and the clinicians and the patients get together and talk and discuss, the faster we will get the what is studied in the basic lab, the fastest it will reach the patient. And this is what we want. So um, I think we need to continue to do that, to join the different worlds. Now it's not only the basic research lab and the clinical setting, but it's also a lot of technological and um, including artificial intelligence tools that can help us gather the data all together and analyze it and have uh, the answers to what we need that we cannot have with traditional clinical trials. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Cardoso. And, and talking about the uh, pieces of a puzzle that, of course, are much needed um, for good patient care. Another part of the puzzle, legislation. So, Mr. Shrek, I'm going to come to you. Is the European Commission doing enough? Um, Metastatic cancer um, is mentioned solely in the context of palliative care in Europe's beating cancer action plan, or isn't it? Um, well, uh, first I should say that, of course, um, well, you probably never do enough, um, but, but what you have to take into account here is the, uh, the role of the European Union in the area of healthcare. Um, which is actually quite limited. There is a possibility, for example, to, um, uh, of course, there, there are legal provisions for authorization of new pharmaceuticals. Yeah, so if, if there are new drugs targeting breast cancer, they would be, be authorized by EMA. Um, and, and there's a pharmaceutical strategy. There was a, a document published recently, uh, for example, with the aim to improve access of all patients in Europe, because we see that uh, that for many drugs, um, they are not available. They are authorized by EMA, but then they are not available in all the member states. And maybe there's something we can do about that, because there we have uh, legal possibilities. But when it comes to the provision of healthcare, the treaty is quite clear. The treaty says very explicitly that it is the member states which are responsible for the organization of the healthcare systems and also the allocation of resources. So th this is something where the, uh, the European Union in general and the Commission specifically cannot interfere. What we can do is we can spread best practice and we can, for example, try to um, define what good care is, um, which we um, do or which the colleagues in the Joint Research uh, Center are doing for breast cancer as well. And, um, what, and, and coming back to what we just discussed, the better integration of healthcare and research, that's also one of the objectives of the process we hope to establish to develop further the idea of comprehensive cancer centers or comprehensive cancer infrastructures. So that uh, will be part of the package and we would hope that this integration would then um, also become a best practice that is implemented um, in most member states, actually in all member states, if that's possible. Yes, ah, yes, and uh, and there's one thing I would also like to mention when um, be because um, we discussed already 
inequality subject. And if you look at this from the perspective of the Commission, you obviously see that there are difference be differences between member states. And uh, one element of this is the available availability of pharmaceuticals. And there we have now seen, um, triggered by the pandemic, this idea of joint procurement uh, of medicines. Uh, for the time being, legally, it's possible only for medicines to deal with pandemics. Um, uh, but the idea now that it has been implemented, um, and actually not only on pharmaceuticals, but also on things like personal protective equipment, for example, I think this might have taken hold yeah, in the minds uh, of decision makers. And maybe in the end, uh, the, this will be expanded also to other areas. Uh, but always fully respecting uh, the um, prerogative of member states in provision of healthcare and also in purchasing pharmaceuticals. So it will all would all be voluntary, let's say, for member states. So that is something we can't do anything about with the legal basis we have at the moment. And as you know, um, there's also the conference uh, on the future of Europe ongoing at the moment. Um, and uh, there are ideas to, to change and strengthen the role of the European Union in the area of healthcare to do more about inequalities uh, could also be envisaged. That it depends also on the input the actors there are receiving. So what I'm always telling all, all the stakeholders is that if you would like the European Union to do more on health, um, then you might also be interested in the overall discussion about the roles of the European Union, because that's really an important determinant for anything the European Union can do. Okay, so Mr. Schreck, they're saying that the role of the Commission is somewhat limited and that the owners should be on member states, perhaps even regions and cities. Uh, Bettina Rahl, as a board member at the, at, at the Mission Board for Cancer at the European Commission, do you think um, or are you happy with the four pillars of um, the Beating Cancer Action Plan, prevention, early diagnosis, treatment and follow-up care? Has this legislation gone far enough? So... Um, so first, uh, the first thing to understand is that the Cancer Mission Board only has advisory functions, so um, we have submitted suggestions. I do believe that having a systematic, I mean, I like systematic approaches uh, in, in general, but if you think really through a cancer problem, you want to make sure that you're effective across the entire spectrum, because we cannot afford to fail in one of the areas. And I think that's one from the Cancer Mission Board, that's one of the learnings. You have to get it all right and not to have weak links in this chain. Because of course, you would like to have as few patients as possible get to the metastatic sp uh, stage, although fully understanding that there will always be some, but of course you want to lessen the pressure on this stage. So I think those four areas are already covering very well. So what I would like to what I would like to see now, and this is something that is beyond the Cancer Mission Board, because now comes the next board, which will be the Implementation Board. I think one also has to systematically think about how do we get to this stage. So it often starts with a research setting, but as long as we just incentivize publications, uh, we're never gonna, I mean, no paper ever saved a patient. So we have to think about how our research findings get effectively translated and get into our healthcare system in the most effective way possible and in a way that actually our healthcare systems can afford it. 
And then it needs broad implementation because if something is just available in one very well developed um, center of excellence, that has that's a drop on a hot stone that has no impact on overall mortality because most patients will never access this. So broad, even, fair, just implementation is critical. So I think of it in my head at least as a grid system. So we have to get these prevention, early detection, treatment, and quality of life, which is actually not just after treatment but across right and we have to think in this system research translation implementation and be effective across this entire grid system if we really want to move the needle so i do believe it has the first important step but now of course it's a huge piece of work and it's not because there are 15 people sitting um, discussing that things will move it's a stone and then everyone has to participate and has to kind of contribute their part in it I'm actually hopeful because it has already kicked off discussions that are broader and more integrated and more ambitious than the things I've seen before. So we're starting to kind of dissolve the silos and get people from different areas to look at problems with, you know, fresh eyes, different eyes, challenge each other. And I've, I'm actually, I'm hopeful that this will get there. It's not the cancer mission board that is going to change the world. It's the people around it, everyone who kind of takes this as, you know, as an idea, as a starting point and runs with it. So I'm I'm positive actually in this respect. Yeah, no doubt everyone has to do their bit. Um, Dr. Cardos, I'm going to come to you, but first of all, to uh, everyone who is watching, all our viewers, don't forget to send in your questions to the chat page. I've only got a few questions at the moment, so you know all our panelists would really love to, I'm sure, answer all of your questions and concerns and comments. So please do send those in. Okay, so Dr. Uh, Cardoso. Perhaps you'd like to weigh in a bit um, on what Mr. Schreck and Dr. Riles said there. Um, now, from what I understand, you've previously, previously said that there's a lack of knowledge from those who take decisions, that there are now treatments that can prolong life up to five years. So, in your opinion, do you think policymakers are perhaps slow to embrace innovation when it comes to metastatic cancer care? Well, I, I wouldn't... Um say that exactly uh, the policymakers. I think there's always and there will always be in health this um, difficulty of uh, how much money are you willing to spend for a year of a person's life. And to my knowledge, the uh, deciders, let's call it the payers, who have taken this, this uh, very clear decision, how much are you willing to pay, was nice in the UK. Um, and you can discuss and you can argue if the price they have put on a one, year's, a one year of a person's life is correct or not. I think there will always be this very difficult equilibrium or balance uh, between what is a, a, a person's life worthwhile and what are you willing to pay for that as a society. But I think the problem of accessibility is a very, very complex problem. And it has many areas that where it can be tackled. I will start by saying that uh, drugs for treating cancer should not be so expensive as they are. It is not possible for any health system to continue to have these exponential in increases in, in, uh, in uh, prices. The second thing is that in all business, you uh, are expected to pay more for uh, an item that is better. But if you look at cancer treatment and, and for medicine in general, you actually sometimes pay more for a drug that gives a lower benefit than another one. 
that makes no sense. That is uh, really makes no sense. Um, there are also uh, approvals, both by the European agency and the American agency, based on very, very limited benefits, mostly mathematical, statistical benefits shown in a clinical trial without truly being a clinically important benefit. So there are, I, what I'm trying to say is that there are many steps that can be improved. I would say that the, the regulators, the big regulators, the EMA and the FDA should be gatekeepers, should not approve everything, but, but really should uh, make a scrutiny on what is really clinically meaningful. And then you have already tools, there exist tools. The European Society of Medical Oncology has developed a tool, the American Society has developed another tool, when you can score, you can score a treatment in an objective way. And so if you are a payer in a country that doesn't have a lot of resources, you can go by priorities and make available those that truly give us the biggest benefit. And then if you are in a big country with a lot of resources, the example is always given by or in, in Europe with Germany, then you can go and provide more and more options because patients need several options of treatment. But you should not pay for one drug that is not important, not providing great benefit, and then do not have the resources to pay the ones that are the most important. So I think we, and we as healthcare professionals, should only prescribe according to guidelines. There are many studies showing that when you use the guidelines, you improve survival and you improve quality of life. What can the commission does? I understand very well that sometimes the commission's hands are tight, but the commission is having, and I'm, I'm sure Stefan will uh, talk about that, it's, it's starting to implement an accreditation system for breast services, for example. And they, I know they have to be voluntary, but you can find a way of rewarding those centers or those countries that will use it. Um, you also made for that accreditation system, you went through the guidelines, you saw the guidelines that are of good quality, and you can um, increase the knowledge of all member states that those are the guidelines that should be followed and that should be implemented, that the patient should be treated according to that. And I'm afraid that what was not done enough is uh, to mention the specific needs of metastatic patients in Europe's beating cancer plan. In, for example, the first draft of the Becker committee, almost no mention to the metastatic ca cancer except on palliative care uh, needs. So there's still a lot to be done at the commission, at the parliament, and then use that as a pressure uh, for us to be able to do that on, uh, on the member states level. Sorry, went a little bit over. No, no, honestly, all of the comments are fantastic, and I hope that this debate, this discussion is something that all our viewers are really enjoying too. I know that myself, I'm learning so much from all of you, so thank you. Um, Mr. Shrek, I will actually come to you uh, just to come back to what um, Dr. Cardoso was saying there about this lack of mention, you could say, of metastatic um, breast cancer. But she also wants, she also mentioned there um, the Commission's approach to 
breast services, and also perhaps you could also mention research and development, anything that's being legislated regarding that as well. Yes, maybe maybe I should start with the uh, with uh, what Fatima was actually mentioning the um, accreditation scheme for for breast cancer, and that is indeed something that um, is um, a novel initi initiative. Um, and uh, indeed, uh, while obviously we cannot impose this on anybody, we hope to start with that a process where it becomes normal to adhere to the standards which are developed there. And they have been de developed very carefully with um, many independent experts in the field. So, um, and uh, depending on how this develops and uh, how the uptake is, if, if you so wish, uh, this could also be done in other areas. Um, now, the beating cancer plan indeed uh, might uh, ultimately not be the perfect plan but um, it is adopted as it is however that does not mean that the um, implementation cannot be changed the the colleagues are actually working on a roadmap uh, which defines um, how the different uh, foreseen actions of the cancer plan will be implemented. And for each of them, uh, before they will be implemented, that implementation will be discussed with stakeholders. There's a special stakeholder contact group um, that that is being established and uh, that will have the possibility to, buy, to provide feedback on how it is implemented. So ultimately, I do think um, that uh, even if you think that something that metastatic breast cancer is not mentioned in sufficiently in the beating cancer plan, I'm sure it will be possible to shape the implementation of the plan um, in such a way that um, indeed it is recognized in the implementation with the importance it it has. Uh, I mean, the, the plan, we are very happy about the plan, but it's not the Bible. Um, we are absolutely available all, all the time to learn from uh, the stakeholders at any moment of the implementation. That's uh, what I wanted to say. Okay, thank you so much. And no doubt, you know, legislation isn't perfect. Um, it involves everyone else to do their bit as well. Um, Mr. Manik, I want to move away a little bit from policy and talk about your personal story. And it's something that you have made very public. You yourself, you got breast cancer, I think it's at 26 years old. You know, I, I feel a bit rude um, for even asking you this, um, but if it's okay, uh, would you be able to talk a little bit about um, your story, what happened to you? I mean, to have gotten breast cancer at such a young age, it must have felt awful, but you've now gone on to uh, not just, um, you know, survive it, but to help others. It's remarkable. Well, yeah, 26, as you said, is not a common age to get a cancer diagnosis and even not a breast cancer diagnosis. Most of women are diagnosed after the age of 50. So uh, before the age of 50, even we don't have any specific screening programs. So the only thing we have is to be uh, cautious and to do self-exam of your breast or to, to, to follow any changes on your body. So I felt a lump in my breast. Um, and I went to my doctor and I was lucky enough that my doctor took me seriously and then that we expect uh, uh, did all the diagnostic procedures. At, at the beginning, my lump wasn't not cancer. It was adenofibroma. 
but after a year it became a cancer. And I was diagnosed um, with a locally advanced disease because my tumor was so big and um, my diagnosis wasn't so brilliant, but it wasn't terrifying for me, maybe also because I have some medical background as a veterinarian and I was a PhD student at that time. So I think it also depends on how do you how you are personally facing the diagnosis. Well, I was very open about it and I shared with everybody my, my story from the beginning and what was happening, all the treatment with chemo, radical surgeries. I had four surgeries. I lost both my breasts because of the cancer. Uh, I'm again lucky enough that I have a uh, that I have opportunity to do the reconstruction surgery and I had 10 years of hormonal treatment after the surgeries and the radiation therapy. So it is a long way to, to walk through even early setting of the disease. So you can imagine how long the journey is for metastatic breast cancers a patient. So why I decided to become a patient advocate and to share my story to help other women is because I saw how many difficulties are women facing during the treatment with access to the treatment and especially with living after the cancer, after the cancer diagnosis and with cancer diagnosis. I quit my career as a scientist. I was a, a researcher at the university uh, in uh, neuro, neurobiology, molecular neurobiology, but I appreciate all those experiences as a scientist because I can use all the knowledge I got during the, the PhD now as a patient advocate to follow, as Fatima said, to, to also be able to see the benefits of the clinical trials and to help other advo patient advocates to get trained and to get adequate information, not just to, to write treatment, but also we talked today about the legislation, what the cancer diagnosis brings to your life. For example, I cannot get life insurance now since I, get can I got cancer at the age of 26. I didn't have life, have life insurance before that, but now I don't have a chance to even get it or uh, a loan for buying a house or an apartment or whatever, you have a lot of limitations. And in that perspective, we are also looking forward to European Beating Cancer Plan, because at least at that point, we will have a very comprehensive document and legislation to implement on the national levels. And that gives us even more power and more tool to advocate for this. We know how many inequalities are among EU member states, and you can imagine how big inequalities are beyond this border. As I mentioned, we have 47 member countries, that's way beyond the European Union, and we see all of these inequalities among Europe. I'm not even going to, to talk about other continents, the, how privileged we are that we live in Europe and that we have all of this, as Bettina already mentioned, personalized medicine. It, this is becoming almost the daily practice in, in some countries and in some hospitals, and it should be a daily practice in all cancer institutions, but we are far from, from that in the reality. Gosh, thank you so much, Ms. Spanik. Um, I didn't really think about that life insurance, owning your own home, and I think anyone who's watching, you know, this is really hard information to hear, um, but I'm sure that they will be happy to at least have that information. So thank you so much. Um, 
we are slightly running out of time, so I'm going to read just a comment um, from one of our viewers, Yvonne. She says, many thanks for the inspirational speakers. Let's work together with the media uh, for the power of the truth about cancer. Um, so great comment there. Thank you, Yvonne. Um, so I'm going to ask all of you just very, very quickly, um, just a few sentences perhaps on your final thoughts. Mr. Shrek, if you could go first. Yes, thank you very much. I think that was a re really very interesting discussion also for me. I learned a couple of new things. Um, I would say that with the new uh, Europe's beating cancer plan, we have really a chance to also improve um, the outlook of people with metastatic breast cancer. Um, but this will depend entirely on the contributions of all the stakeholders. So I would invite everybody to use the opportunities uh, which exist to shape the implementation of that plan for the benefit of all patients with metastatic breast cancer. Thank you, Dr. Rowley, if you go next. I do, to build on that, I, so if we look at advanced cancer, it's a highly complex problem. And we have now had promising treatments coming through in different shapes and form. If you look at immune therapy, if you look at personalized therapies, if you look at ATMPs, um, and there is more actually coming. So this will require for our systems to start thinking differently and to start shifting in ways that we've never, probably never done before. And that requires collaboration between very different stakeholder groups who haven't worked together before. So I think we're in, we have the potential, we're at the, at the cusp of something that can really make a difference for patients with advanced disease and any cancer, and hopefully also other diseases, there's more than cancer out there, but it re will require that we rethink how we operate in our healthcare systems. And um, so in the end, it's up to us to make that happen. Thank you so much, Dr. Cardoso. Well, I, I wanted to um, give our special thanks for uh, the European Commission and the European Commissioner for Health for having been able to define and to deliver a Europe's beating cancer plan, the first European cancer plan during a pandemic. So even with all the burden of the pandemic, they were able not to forget cancer. And I think we are deeply grateful that this has happened. Now we, we just have to go into the details and work all together, collaborate, share experiences, and look for the best implementation plan in each individual country. And I really hope also that we can work together with WHO. WHO has a new breast cancer initiative also for, um, for all the countries, but mostly for low middle income countries. And if we all work together and learn from our experiences, we will be able to change the lives of metastatic breast cancer patients and metastatic cancer patients all over the world. Thank you also for the opportunity to be here. No, thank you. Um, and then lastly, but not least, Danny Schwanek, if you could um, give your final thoughts, please. Yes, well, first of all, I really would like to thank you that you invited us today here, that we can uh, open a, a lot of questions and maybe give some answers and suggestions. Uh, we definitely uh, they give our, gave our input for European, Europeans beating cancer plan, plan, and we can also do this again, uh, not just as Europa Dona, but with transforming breast cancer together with those initiatives. And we are also collaborating with other 
European uh, cancer organizations on this issue. And we believe that this document really can be a very good uh, document and very good uh, fundamental document for all member countries. And as Fatima said, develop this thing during the pandemic is another important topic because we are well aware that we don't live just in COVID uh, pandemic, but we have also uh, a pandemic of cancer among uh, uh, in our society. And uh, what would I wish is really to lower these numbers in um, not in incidence, which is almost impossible in breast cancer, but in death rates and to cure metastatic breast cancer, not to as Fatima said, that so far we can say that this is incurable disease, but that in near future we will be able to say that we can cure metastatic breast cancer. Thank you so much. And, you know, really, this has been such a fantastic, um, informative discussion. I'm so happy to have all of you um, as panelists, but sadly we are going to have to leave it there. So to Stefan Shrek, Bettina Rao, Fatima Cardoso, and Tanya Shvanik, just thank you so, so much for being part of this discussion and to everyone who is watching online. I really hope that what you have heard has informed your opinion better of what metastatic breast cancer is and how care for patients should be improved across the European Union. I'm Rahim Saidi and you've been watching a Europe debate sponsored by Sanofi. Take care and bye.